Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good morning. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. So today we are going to be covering sourdough. And I thought it would be helpful if we just painted a quick picture of what that looked like in our family, because trust me, those first hundred loaves did not turn out well. So um, I've been making sourdough successfully for, I don't know, two, three years now. What do you think, Joe? Successfully. You think three years? Maybe two years. And I think that first year, um, three years ago, it was consistently dense and um, flat and very sour. And I remember making some loaves with like a big hole and thinking like, oh, I'm getting closer. This is this is more successful. I'm getting it. Mm. Meanwhile, I was trying the same basic recipe every time. And then a real um, flip switched when I discovered high hydration sourdough recipes. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about high hydration sourdough using a long fermentation method. And uh, keep in mind, all of this information is coming from me, a home baker, right? I'm not a professional baker. Um, I think in the future, I'd actually love to sit down with a professional baker and sort of like hash out some of my um, inklings or hypotheses and see if they match up with what they have to say. But for today, it's just coming from um, Joey and I's experience, much like a lot of this stuff on this podcast is. So we are going to dive into um, some technical things here, but we're going to keep this very basic, very beginning. And a lot of the structure of today's episode is actually going to be following um, the beginner sourdough guide, which I have for free on homegrowneducation.org. So if during this episode you want to pull that up or download that, again, it's for free. I think we've had well over 10,000 downloads on that puppy. Like grab that. Make sourdough. Yeah. Just make some good sourdough. It'll be helpful. So um, we're going to be working through that. Um, and and really, Joey's just going to be kind of interviewing me and we're going we're gonna to cover some of those most commonly asked questions because I have two that I get almost every day. I actually just answered another one like five minutes ago. So I'm excited to jump in, talk about sourdough, maybe shatter some myths um, and some misconceptions around it, and then just share what we're learning and and um, how we love to incorporate sourdough into our family. Right on. I think as, we, as I look back on some of the first batches that you made, and when we first kind of got into sourdough, I recall it being this really exciting thing because there's a narrative in the world today, and especially, you know, three, four years ago when we were starting to make bread of just bread was, was, you know, uh, public enemy number one, right? Don't eat bread that, and you know, there's, there is uh, a lot of reasons why people might be avoiding bread, but in our case, the reason why we weren't eating a lot of bread was we had a bad understanding of, of gluten. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're going to get into all this uh, as we continue in the episode. But I remember when you first started baking bread and they were like door stoppers, right? Yeah. But at the time, bread was so rare in my day-to-day life. At the, I just was excited to eat. Bread. Anything, any kind of bread. Yeah. And so you would say, hey, made some bread. We're going to put some butter on it. We'll salt it up. We can you know, eat it with our stew or whatever else. And hey, we made, we made some you know, venison stew and, and, and I'm going to make a loaf of bread. And the bread would come out and it would be, you know, like a pound cake. And it would be a very, <laughs> what do you call that? The crumb of the, of the bread was extremely dense. A very dense crumb, yes. Very dense crumb. And, and 
um, you know, for me at the time, I actually loved it. Yeah. Now did. I was also being, because it's just kind of my natural go-to <laughs> just a supportive husband. And I'm like, yo, you're doing great. This is awesome. And, um, I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And, and, um, and we ate it and we made toast with it. I mean, geez, I remember making like sandwiches with it. Croutons. We yeah. weren't like wasting the bread. It wasn't like we were baking a loaf and it was, you know, uh, not up to the current sourdough that we're making now standards and just throwing it away. It was, um, yeah. What were some of the, like, some of the influences, like how did you get into sourdough bread at all? Like where did you first find it? Because it certainly wasn't me. It wasn't like I came to you and said, you know what? I'm really interested in some sourdough bread from scratch. Can you get after that? Yeah, it, it was, you know, if you listen to our very first podcast where we share a bit of our real food journey, it was in that time where, like I said, grains was sort of the last thing that we adopted in this um, sort of like traditional eating. And I always knew that there, or I didn't always knew, I, I was recently learning that there were certain ways to prepare your grains. Um, and uh, so I was trying to utilize what I was learning, but I was still so new and I, I was pulling um, information from the internet. I was pulling information from Wise Traditions Cookbook, um, which her sourdough uh, recipe is just so different from the method that I use today. And so because I was using these, um, I don't even know what they are. They're kind of old school, but they're they're not traditional uh, sourdough methods. Regardless, they don't they don't create the same type of bread. They don't. You can't use a quart of starter and create the same type of bread that we make with you know 50 grams. So. Um, <clears throat> It was my attempt to dive deeper into this real food journey, my attempt to, hey, I, I know that wheat is kind of tricky, but there are people that say if you if you utilize it in a sourdough method, then it can be more digestible for us. And I thought, that's awesome. And I thought, um, you know, I, this is a skill I want to have. This is something I want to learn how to do because making your own bread from scratch is kind of awesome if all you need is water, flour, and salt. Like we, those are things we have on hand all the time. But I, I did not anticipate such a knowledge gap. I didn't anticipate how long it would take me to wrap my head around it. And um, I'm really thankful for, for because I, I, I would start to bake bread and then I had like five loaves that really were awful. And then I just didn't do anything with it. I think I threw my starter away and then I would try to create another starter. And in that time we had a, another baby. And so it was like a very sporadic journey. But I would say it stemmed from my understanding that, hey, this can lead to a healthier, more nutrient-dense bread. I just don't know how to get there. So the real kicker was, honestly, my mom also started making sourdough bread probably about two years ago. I think it was before Ray, so I'm kind of using her as my timeline. She's almost two. So, um, And my mom was actually getting some success with it. And she pulled a recipe from one of her friends that was a high hydration dough and I had never heard that term before I, I was like what is that um, and so I tried it and and it was the most successful loaf I had had so far and then I learned what to search for I learned to put in those key terms like in my internet search and online and on Instagram and and hashtags and then I was almost opened up to this whole other world of sourdough that no one had even talked about like it, the, it was so weird but that was really the key high hydration was was the kicker in my journey to, to becoming successful, but like kind of, so getting into sourdough, 
there was some natural desire, but also you were you were following or you were reading through wise traditions and right the the book yeah and in that book you you identified hey this is a way that we're making bread right so you're kind of following that process and uh within that process there was stuff talking about you know organ meats we were talking through uh, raw dairy we were talking through um other other forms of grain prep too so this is where i learned that um you can soak grains you can um sprout grains you know and then another option is sour leavening which is you know what we like to use in sourdough so yeah it, it was a blend of okay i'm i'm learning about this but functionally how in the world do i do it and the recipe that i was learning from in that book wasn't helpful for me got it so i had to like piecemeal my information right on so getting it getting into sourdough was was kind of the first step and then it was you you, you experienced a gap in knowledge like you there was no nowhere else to go at the at the time to yeah. figure out how do we improve the quality of the bread that we're making, and it's hard because there's not really like a you know a class that you can go attend to at least that I'm aware of. I actually took a class. Did you? Yeah, I I took an online class. I think I paid fifteen dollars for it, um, and I learned like the very basics of honestly, and the information we'll probably cover today. Um, and that was helpful, but I still functionally couldn't get it down. And again, that class was not representative of a high hydration dough. So I might sound like a broken record, but that is really the key. When you're seeing, especially now, three years later, that sourdough's like gotten so big and kind of been put back on the map after everyone was baking at home. Um, when you're seeing really beautiful, huge artisan loaves of mm. sourdough, not like the whole wheat tight crumb, um, those are high hydration loaves. And sometimes those those bakers are pushing like 85, 90% hydration, which is insane. Mm. Um, and we'll get into the all of that stuff right now. But the biggest thing, I, I had two breakthroughs. One, learning that sourdough was a method, not a flavor. Because for so long, you know, you go to a restaurant, do you want white wheat or sourdough bread? You know, you're like, oh, it's it's got to be a flavor of bread. It's just a distinguishing factor in how it tastes. But learning that that was like a method to leaven things. So uh, figuring that out and utilizing sourdough as a way to make my baked goods rise or leaven um, was breakthrough because it meant, A, I didn't have to just use sourdough for big loaves of crusty bread. I could use it for everything that I would traditionally use like a packet of yeast for. Um, and I think that's one of the things that people so often don't fully understand is like, well, why would I even um, choose to make sourdough? Why can't I just use the instant packets of yeast at the store? And um, this is where th there's such a difference in the process of how the flour is utilized. So when you're, util when you're using just an instant packet of yeast, you're getting partial fermentation because the yeast is eating through some of that starch in the flour, but it doesn't have its um, counterpart. It's like partner in crime, which is that lactic acid bacteria and that acidic bacteria to also then um, continue that fermentation process and break things down. So what I like to tell people is sourdough is using wild yeast, yeast in your environment, yeast that is already in your kitchen, <clears throat> it's in your flour. It's on your hands, probably. Um, the, at least the microbes are. Um, it's shedding off your fruit in your kitchen. It's everywhere. And so it's like the old traditional way of cultivating this, you know, very ancient 
species um, versus, hey, we specified specific types of yeast and then dried them and then um, sold them to you in a packet for 99 cents, right? So it's just a completely different method of bread and and baked goods. And, and we're going to get into, um, and I'm, I'm going to ask you the question because I want to know, you know, what is sourdough? But right before we get there, uh, I think there's a really spectacular story that I wanted to bring up because another breakthrough that I recall occurring in on the path of real sourdough bread making was our starter just was not getting after it like we wanted it to. <laughs> yeah. And there was, it was, I mean, we were trying everything, right? We were to different places, the house, you know, feeding it the whole, the whole nine yards. And it would like grow like what? Maybe an inch. I mean, it was just not. Yeah. A quarter inch really. And, um, I remember you said, I'm going to take my starter over to my mom's house and leave it over there for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? And you're like, I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, yeast. You know, what did you say? She like, has the yeasties. Yeah, it's yeastier over there. I don't yeah. know what that is. And you take, take the starter, put it in your mom's house. And this thing became like a ferocious. Oh, it doubled in 24 hours. And all she did was feed it one time. And I, I just remember that being so funny to me. It yeah. was like, man, that she's got more yeast in her air than we have over here. I, and that's honestly, I mean, that sounds crazy. Um, I think that there is something to be said about your environment, right? Because a bakery, a professional bakery, has um, a higher concentration of some of those microbes because they're baking all the time. So they're they're creating a really warm and welcoming environment for that stuff. They're keeping their temps at a specific, you know, yeah. range. And so for us, I was thinking like, wow, well, we just like redid our kitchen. You know, we're in this like house that I haven't really done a ton of baking in. And maybe I just don't have the yeast. Our house is just too clean. It's just, well, it, <laughs> it was too, I don't know. I don't know if if the same method would have happened if I just waited an extra day. Mm. Um, because this was so early on, I think I could have been more patient. I, I think I was on like day five at mm. that point, which now I tell people when they're, when they're making their starter, don't even expect it to double until after day 10, mm. except for that weird window in wait, day three that happens. But it was a funny um, way that we justified it. It was like, mom has the good yeast. She's making good bread. She's always baked in her home. Her counters have always had like a little bit of flour on them. Like even just growing up, she was always like making scones or yeah. um, something. And so... You know, it, it is something. It's it's a beautiful thing because it's like you just kind of try whatever you think might work with <laughs> yeah, sourdough yeah. because it's like, yeah, maybe it needs a change of environment. Maybe it just needed to be fed with my mom's bag of flour instead of mine. Maybe, like I said before, I just needed to wait an extra day and I would have gotten the same results, but like we'll never know. So it's such, and that's one of the points too with with sourdough baking. And I think why so many people have shifted away from it um, or did shift away from it is because there's just so many variables Mm. and it's way different from following a recipe and blooming your instant packet of yeast and then just adding in your flour and letting it rise. That's a much simpler process. And what I would say is, is that all those variables can be extremely overwhelming, but all those variables also add to some of the... Um, interest and excitement that that I think that you and I find with sourdough now, because there's some basic principles, the the one-on-one course, if you will, that can kind of get you set up to make quality bread and understand the, the you know the foundation of sourdough, mm-hmm. and then and then and then it frees you up to really explore all kinds of different 
avenues and, and, and almost ex- experiment with it. Right. Yeah. And, um, uh, that that's 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 super cool, and I think it's just absolutely hilarious. I can't get over it that our our starter just would not grow, and we took it over to your parents' house, and boom, it was it was getting after it. Now, just to be clear, we keep it at our house now, so we don't we don't keep it over there, and it's I, I I've seen it do pretty well on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean that that original starters. <clears throat> about two, three years old now. I have created new starters since then in my own home with no issues. Mm. Again, because they probably sit right next to my established starter and it's just ready to go. The environment. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Check. All right. So let's, let's, um, what is sourdough? What is sourdough? I'll, I'll give you the most basic, um, definition that I think helps people wrap their heads around this topic. Like I said earlier, sourdough is, is the most traditional method of, of leavening our baked goods. It's what we have done since we started cultivating wheat or finding it in in some sort of grain. Um, It is utilizing the natural yeast and bacteria that um, are, like I said, in our environment, in the wheat itself, um, and allowing the process of fermentation to take place when you mix water and flour together. So water on its own isn't going to ferment. Dry flour on its own is not going to ferment. But when you mix those two together and you have a warm environment where um, it is optimal for these microbes to produce and um, multiply, then that's going to happen. So Every sourdough starts with a starter culture. Sometimes um, there's different names for that. Some people use their starter and they also build a levain out of that. Um, I like to keep things really simple and say, if you have an established sourdough starter culture, which is water, flour, that's it. And then if you count like the microbes in there as your ingredients. Um, And with that, you can add that to fresh water and flour and make anything that you want to make. You can make pizza, you can make Mm. cinnamon rolls, you can make bread, you can make pretzels, bagels, English muffins. I mean, anything, uh, pancakes, waffles, the the list goes on and on. Think of any baked good. As I've watched the process, and this is just me from outside looking in, because right now I'm learning, just for, uh, to, to be clear, I have never baked Oh my gosh! A loaf of sourdough. Never even touched the dough. Yeah, I've never done it. So, so um, all of my information is just from outside looking in, and and um, for me, it's just appeared to be it's all in the starter. Yeah. Right. And so, so hey, we're we're making sourdough um, X Y Z. What what I've identified with that is well, no, we have a starter that has been created through this you know sourdough method. Where it's just water and flour and a jar on the countertop and time yeah. and time yeah like like clock time not, yeah not like herb time <laughs> and um and then that that then becomes the leavening agent and then now we're talking the sourdough process really mm-hmm. and so sourdough bread right is just is is bread through the sourdough process right. is, is that as I'm interpreting what you're saying now with my understanding is that what we're talking about so. Basically, anything that you're add that you're leavening with a starter that's that you've made in your home through that traditional kind of sourdough method, now is a sourdough product. Yeah, and I can say from personal experience that almost none of the, I don't know of any of the products we've made products any of the um, baked goods that we've created that have actually tasted sour. Mm-hmm. It almost never does. Yeah, and I think that's something that's like uh, your 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 brother 
and uh, sister-in-law, you know, when they came to stay with us and, and we're making bread. And, and I remember Kevin always saying, you know, I don't like sourdough. I don't like sourdough. Mm-hmm. And I could kind of understand that because as I understood sourdough as well, um, you know, for years of my life, yeah, it was a little bit sour. Now, in culinary school, when we did a lot of baking courses and whatnot, we used yeast. Yeah. We didn't do this. You never did natural fermentation? I don't think I even learned about it. And if I did, I want to apologize to my chefs <laughs> and my um, he hates pastry artists. Yeah, you yeah, hate baking. I, pastry arts was not, was not my strong, strong suit. I, I, I liked to, to be in the, in the heat, in the, in, like down in the pit, you know, getting after, um, you know, high paced, quick moving, taste it right before it goes out. needs a little bit of, you know, a little extra salt, hit it with some salt. You're throwing it on the dish and you're, you're back onto the next thing. Whereas baking is like, um, science and it's patience and it's, um, it's trying it one way, identifying that it did not work, making a note of it in your book, like keeping a log mm-hmm. and then trying it another way. And so, um, which while I'm on the topic, did you ever do like a sourdough journal? Was that a thing? I I used to write notes on little scrap pieces of paper, mm. um, like recipes. Basically, okay, I'm going to try this much salt. I'm going to try this much water. I highly recommend if you benefit from note taking to just get a little journal and write it down. Mm. I know um, the big bakers, the big home bakers, I should say, um, usually keep notes. I am not like a note taker per se so i've i've done a bad job i've done a poor job of keeping a a sourdough journal however i do sort of sort of process my learnings from each bake i actually had a huge learning this week that i'll share on the end of this episode but um and then I just like tie that in a bow on, in my head. And I'm mm. like, okay, this is what I learned mm-hmm. from this. I don't, I don't need like the, mm-hmm. the And you're, you're also doing it frequently enough that oh, yeah, it's like, week. hey, yesterday I did this and it didn't work. I'm going to try it differently exactly. this time. And um, right on. So, so to speak to the sour thing, because I think that's a big misconception, right? And again, I'll say it a thousand times. Sourdough is not a flavor. It's a method. Um, this, the sourdough products that you're buying at your, at the store. So like recently, Simple Truth, Kroger's line, um, their organic line came out with a Simple Truth organic sourdough English muffin. I was like, oh wow, this is before I was like getting really good at bread. So I was like, I have never made English muffins. Let me buy that. If you turn it over and look on the ingredients, there's vinegar in the, in the Mm. ingredients because they're trying to accentuate that sour flavor and there's um added yeast so you know that it's not a genuine sourdough if it has yeast in the ingredients um or especially vinegar now i have seen vinegar added to genuine sourdough products just to accentuate that flavor um organic bread of heaven out in chicago um northern chicago or northern illinois uh Maybe it's not even in Chicago. I don't know. Wherever they are, they they sometimes accentuate their flavor with vinegar. But the key to knowing what is a genuine sourdough and what is not is the ingredient list. If it is just water, flour, and salt, and in that, the starter contains water and flour, right? So you don't usually list that as a separate ingredient. Then you know that the only way that that bread was risen was by the natural fermentation process that happens from combining those three together. Now, you can't just take regular flour and regular water and regular salt and mix them together and get bread. You have to have your starter culture. Um, but like I said, if your starter c- culture just contains water and flour, that's why that ingredient isn't isn't duplicated so um the stuff we buy in the store the stuff my mom bought 
in the store growing up all had vinegar in it mm. all to to play on our you know american version of like sourdough as yeah. a flavor and so yeah you can actually make really mild sourdough baked goods and the difference is the type of bacteria that you're cultivating wow. and so we can talk about ways to manipulate that process but there are two types of of bacteria in sourdough one is acidic um, bacteria and one is lactic acid bacteria mm. and lactic acid bacteria gives you that sort of smoother milkier flavor and the acetic acetic or acidic however you say that is the sour flavor mm. so it's just two different types of bacteria lending themselves to different flavors right on um so as we're answering that question what is sourdough the answer to that in its basic form because we just went on for a while which is what we're is why we're here <laughs> That's why we're here is, um, hey, sourdough is a method. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone was ever following, you know, homegrown and uh, or another, you know, influencer out there of of some form to learn more about sourdough bread and a post went up that said sourdough is a method, not a blah, blah, blah. It's really hard to understand that. And I think that, you know, listening through you, listening to you talk about it um, has even helped me. Yeah. Where. Um, sourdough is really the process of creating that starter mm-hmm. and adding in that starter to help leaven different uh, baked goods, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're making, um, uh, you know, bread or baguette or pancakes or, you know, whatever, waffles, yep, um, it's it's adding that in. And, and uh, it's, I'm also hearing you say that, hey, uh, adding vinegar in to make it sour, to call it sourdough is incorrect. Adding vinegar into your bread in some capacity because you enjoy that flavor is totally appropriate. Yeah, and okay. that's fine. So like, who cares? Like, you, hey, if if you enjoy your bread tasting sour, adding vinegar in, or uh, I'm assuming there's ways as we're as we're getting into the as we're getting into um, you know, deeper into this that as you know, when you're cooking sourdough, that acidic. Um, bacteria you were talking about coming out and be more pronounced yeah. can sometimes be something that could happen in which case it may taste a little more sour so 100%. before we get into that though um and and we're really on a journey here to kind of give a an overview of of sourdough helping people kind of get started um and before we get talking because i know that we've already kind of gotten into it a little bit and it can be a little bit confusing for people it's confusing for me so <laughs> if it's not confusing for people i'm sorry but it's confusing <laughs> for me um, let's go through some key terms and what they mean. That okay. way, that way, I can kind of write them down here in my notebook, and um, as we're talking about it, um, I'll know I'll know what you're what you're saying. So okay. give, give me the key terms of sourdough, uh, what what they mean, and and then and then we're gonna get into like a process, like overview how to how to bake the bread start to finish. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I won't share all the key terms that are listed on this guide. Again, um, everyone can pick this up. I'll because we'll cover some of them in the equipment. You're talking about the sourdough guide. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right the the begin homegrown's. Uh, beginner sourdough guide and beginner because it truly is that um there are plenty of well-written books that you can spend money to purchase on i created this guide to be everything i wanted to know when i first started out like i said i it was all like a full year of baking bad bread so um the starter right i think we've identified that that is basically the powerhouse of sourdough that is the living culture that you cultivate one time Um, which that process can take between 7 to 10 to 14 days. It just depends. Um, And that starter culture is something that you continually um, feed and discard, and the yeast and bacteria, the microbes in there repopulate. That is a um, renewable resource, Mm -hmm. sort of. So that is something that you create one time, and ideally you 
sustain it and you keep it alive and you can have that for the rest of your life you can bake with a single starter for the rest of your life if you want to there are you know 250 year old starters you can buy on on etsy whoa yeah so all that is is like hey this starter has been um going they dry it out whatever so my my basic understanding of a starter um you know calling it a living culture the powerhouse that all makes sense to me this is like at its boiled down version instead of yeast we use this. So the starter is all you're doing when you create it and then when you maintain it is you set up an environment for yeast to come. So you're not adding in any yeast. You're mm. not you're not You're creating yeast. You're you're not you're not birthing yeast. You're creating an environment for yeast to come Got to it. it because yeast, yeast and, is yeast is and bacteria right are on. everywhere. Got it. So if you create the it's like the, you build it they will come. If mm-hmm. you create the right environment um, using um, good high quality flour and filtered water and uh, a clean jar it's really basic got it so all of that is it's like a medium it's a medium for those natural um microbe resources to come cultivate right on wow what's next um so then there's two different types of bacteria right so there's lactic acid producing bacteria Um, which we know as lactobacillus, and then there's also acetic bacteria. So those two different types of bacteria. How do you spell that? I'm sorry. um, Acidic is A-C-E-T-I-C. Okay, because you kept saying it. I'm like, I I was thinking acidic. I was going to spell it A-C-I-D, you know what I mean? And and then, but like, I I don't, yeah, acetic. I might be, I might be pronouncing it incorrectly, but acetic acid is responsible for the tangy flavor in sourdough, whereas the presence of um, lactic acid bacteria um, it doesn't create necessarily a super sour flavor, but it is really beneficial for keeping away mold. Mm. That's why mold is very rare with your sourdough starter. Got it. Um, and it's also rare in your bread. Like your bread can actually last on the counter for seven days without molding. The next term I want to cover is feedings. And I think this can get really confusing for people. Because, feedings? Yeah, like feedings. Like f- hungry feedings? Mm-hmm. feedings? So... When you both create your initial starter, you have to feed it um, every day or every couple of days. And then once you have an established mature starter, you have to continue feeding it. Because like I said, it is just the environment that keeps these microbes repopulating, continuously multiplying. So um, you have to maintain that. Otherwise, they'll starve or they'll smother out and, and you'll be left with just a puddle of regular flour and water into putty so um, a feeding is basically when you add your fresh water and your fresh flour to your sourdough starter and when you do that you need to be taking out some of your initial starter that's already in the jar so it'll just keep growing yeah so we'll kind of cover two terms at once we'll cover what a discard means and what a feeding is and um, just really quickly you discard because you you want to concentrate the amount of starter that you are feeding So I like to say, you know, instead of trying to feed a massive army with like everyone gets a little loaf of bread, here you go. It's meaning like not discarding any of your starter. We're going to like select our SEAL team and we're going to discard a ton of the starter. We're only going to leave our concentrated like special ops team behind. They call that an attrition rate. Yeah. And then to, I don't know what that even means, but, and then to that special ops team, we're going to give them tons of fuel to make sure that they can do what they need to do. So this always wakes people out because they're like, what do you mean I have to discard? Do I have to throw it away? What do I do? There are so many comments I could make on this and I want to keep this episode really high level so that people just getting into bread, um, don't get, uh, lost here, but, 
Um, basically, when you go to bake your bread and you use your starter in your bread, that's considered a natural discard, right? You're using part of your starter, so part of that jar is getting taken out, used for something else, and then you go and you feed your starter after that. If you're not baking bread on a regular basis, this is where people say you need to discard your starter to mimic that process. Ideally, you're baking enough to where you're not just like shoveling out good starter and not baking with it, right? Like that's part of the the thing with sourdough is learning how to bake on a consistent basis so that mm. you're not just keeping gallons of of discard quote um, in your in your fridge because discard is both a verb and a noun right and I break this down in the guide so when someone says I'm discarding that's like the act of taking out their their a portion of their starter so that they can feed that tiny special ops team and when someone says I'm using my discard noun to make pancakes or whatever discard recipe then they're using the remaining uh, or not remaining they're using the discarded starter from the fridge to to bake something to try to utilize it so that they're not throwing it away because it's good fermented flour and this is something that people get so caught up in um, and I think it kind of becomes like a stumbling block for people because they think, A, either I have to waste so much flour with sourdough, mm. which is not true, or B, I have to learn all of these discard recipes to, to make this effort worth it because it is a little bit of effort. And the thing I want to encourage people is that there are ways that you can um, – you can influence the rate at which your starter grows and peaks to use it whenever you want to use it. And then you can pop that thing in the fridge mm. and let it kind of freeze in time. Hibernate. And then you can also use your cold starter, right? Not your discard. This gets so confusing for people. Um, but you can use your cold starter and you can, or you can use unfed starter to make bread. So there are so many different ways that you can bake bread on a regular basis without ever having to keep a jar of quote discard in your fridge um anyways the feeding is important because what that's doing is continuously giving um your your bacteria and your yeast new fuel Mm. to eat through so that they can continue to multiply that's what they want to do they want to have a party they want to throw the party in your jar and they want to bring all their friends and all you're doing is hosting that environment and making sure everyone stays well fed so to be clear you're not actually throwing the discard into the trash you can if you want okay and you know what I don't know why we think it's like a, this massive sin. Probably it's my fault because I I say it in the guide. Don't throw it away. But I think sometimes people take that too literally to say like never throw away your discard. Here's the thing. If I have my sourdough starter, which again is two years old, we're not talking about a brand new, I'm just trying to establish it because when you are in that period of like incubating your starter, um, you do have to throw it away. Because it's too early to stay to save. Um, you can, yeah, oh, I won't even get into that. But once you have your regular starter, say it's been sitting on my counter for three days unfed, because I do that often because I'm not like a, oh, you have to feed it every single day type of person. I am not going to save. When I open my jar, it smells like acetone. It smells like nail polish remover because it's so hungry my yeast and bacteria have been starved basically for those three days so I'm not going to use that discard in pancakes because my pancakes would then taste so sour so there are definitely times where I think it's okay to throw your discard in the it's gonna be something that you learn and and 
um, you're gonna you're gonna take these processes and things that we are sharing and do what's best for you. Yeah, right? you could. You could at the end of the day, you could save every ounce. Exactly. And you could do whatever you want to do with that thing. And if you're in a situation where you keep, I think your mom probably keeps her star in the fridge 98% of its life. 100%. Yeah. And it's just hibernating in there. And that's a, I'm guessing, a method of which is more um, efficient, right? Because mm-hmm. you're, you're not going to be feeding it all the time. Now, if, if you're baking bread on a very frequent basis, if your baking frequency aligns with your starter discard, um, uh, what, what would you call it? Accumulation. Rhythm, rhythm, accumulation. Mm-hmm. Well, then the quote unquote discard, like you were saying, is the leavening agent to the baked goods that you're making. Exactly. And thus, that's how the process works perfectly. Mm-hmm. The, the process working perfectly is that you're using this discard or this, this natural process of, hey, it's time to take a portion of this starter out so that I can refeed it again to keep the, um, the yeast that are inside this carrier as strong as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, when you take those out, if you add those into a loaf of bread that you're baking, that is the process working perfectly, mm-hmm. as I understand it from you telling me. Okay, right on. That makes sense to me. And I think that um, it's truly just however you want to be using your your starter. So mm-hmm. um, and any other any other definitions, any other key, uh, key terms? So uh, the rest of these are all kind of part of the process. So um, like we can talk about what a bulk ferment means or what a cold proof is. Um, or what a stretch and fold look like, or we can just go right into the process of making dough, and I can sort of share throughout that high level of what each stage is doing. Yeah, I think I'm going to quick review the terms. So we've got starter, that is the that is the um, seal team, that is the um, leavening agent, that is the jar of paste that is on your countertop that you add in to your batch of bread yep the living culture yep the yeast alternative right you're not going to buy dry yeast you're going to have a starter right that's that's how we would potentially define Mm -hmm. that we've got um different forms of acid that are different forms of bacteria bacteria that produce different yeah and we've got lactic acid Mm -hmm. and we've got Acetic, acidic, acidic, mm-hmm. and that's where the kind of your t- tangy flavor is coming from. The other one's the buttery, kind of like more, um, you know, smooth kind of flavor. Then we got feedings, where you're feeding your starter, and then you've got discard. Yep. Um, discard can be something that is saved in the fridge. It can be something that is put into bread, as as your starter. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it can be thrown into the to the garbage depending on what stage you're in or what your um, preferences preferences so uh, yeah take me through the process so I, I want to bake bread I understand the terms um, I want to create my starter I want to um, and I want to make a traditional loaf of sourdough bread that everyone wants to post on Instagram yeah um, um, I'll walk you through really quickly yeah so the first thing you're going to do is make sure that your starter is going to do what's called peaking at the time that you want to mix your dough. So with sourdough starters, obviously um, when you feed that sourdough starter, it's not going to 
instantaneously consume all those starches. You need to give it time. And so as it eats through that fresh food, um, it's it's releasing carbon dioxide. And so that's what creates those bubbles. So if you've ever seen a time lapse of a sourdough starter that's just been fed, it will rise, sometimes double or triple in size, and then it will continue, it will start to fall back down and um, like collapse again. And that process will continue to happen as, as long as you continue to feed mm-hmm. it. And I like to call it like the, the tide of the ocean, right? So high tide would be like when your starter has peaked or doubled. Um, and they actually say the best time to utilize your starter for a really efficient bake is to use it at its peak which is when it has doubled in size and is just barely starting to come back down barely because what that means is hey my yeast and bacteria are hyperactive right now they have consumed all of their current food and they are ready and primed for more food you can extend that um that sort of activity level without it going to a plateau, which is what it would naturally do before it descends. Um, There's a fantastic article on this that I'm actually going to add into the sourdough guide for like (laughs) required reading because it it gives graphs and if, Mm. if you're into like the deep science, it's fascinating. So Making sure that your starter peaks um, is key, is the first part of baking your bread. So for me, my starters um, can peak anywhere from four to six to eight hours after I feed them, which it totally depends on the feeding ratio I have used. So if I've taken out part of my starter, meaning I've discarded some, and now I'm ready to feed it, well, if if I have... 10 grams remaining in the jar and I only feed it 10 grams water and 10 grams flour that's a one to one to one feeding ratio and my yeast is going to eat through that really quickly right because I just gave everyone just enough to sustain Mm. them now if I give everyone a one to five to five ratio which means okay I have 10 grams remaining starter I have 50 grams water and 50 grams flour then everyone's going to eat through that a little bit slower because it's five times the amount of food per volume of my starter. So this sounds technical. It's not. It's simple math. I'm not a math person. Um, It's a basic principle of sourdough. You feed your sourdough per whatever ratio you need. If you're like, oh, shoot, I want to mix my dough tonight, but I haven't fed my starter yet, feed it at a lower ratio because it will it will peak faster does that make sense makes sense it's kind of an inverse right oh i need it to peak in the morning because i i want to mix my dough in the morning but i want to go to bed right now how do i make sure it doesn't peak in the middle of the night well feed it a really high ratio so that it has plenty of time over the next 12 hours to feed to mm-hmm. eat through that stuff so Assuming you're working with a peaked starter, um, the first thing you do is you mix the water and the flour to, or sorry, you mix the water and the starter together. It makes sort of this like milky mixture. And all that does is help the sourdough starter um, disperse evenly throughout Mm, your dough. Now, you can either add in your flour at this point um, and mix that and let that do what's called an auto lease or just sit there. Um, Actually, auto lease can also just be mixing your flour and your water. There are specific terms in the sourdough world, um, like levain, autolease. Um, it sounds like there's some more key terms here that maybe we should have. So these are, I'm, I'm going to say this right now. I purposefully left these out of the sourdough guide because they confused the heck out of me when mm. I was first getting started. They are just fancy terms for basically principles you already utilize in sourdough anyways. And um, I didn't feel like they added any benefit. I think it's something that once you're into sourdough, you can say like, oh, this is what that process actually was. 
So I'm going to give you the most basic um, method to make this dough. So I'm going to say that you mix your starter and your water together. You add in your flour. And I go ahead and add in my salt right away. Mm. Other people say that the salt inhibits with some of that absorption of the water into the flour. I've never had an issue with it. I think it's simple. That's what I like to do. I mix all my ingredients together. You let it rest for 30 minutes to an hour. And then, um, so all that's doing is incorporating all your all of your ingredients. It's simple. You're using um, warm water, which I give you specific temps in the guide. And um, all the recipes, ratios. Yeah, it's all in there. In the guide. Right on. So then once you move on from the mixing the dough concept or, or portion of this, um, we're going to get into building the structure of the bread which is the gluten so um, this is the protein in wheat that helps give um, sort of creates like this web-like structure in bread which allows the air bubbles to be trapped which gives you a really nice open crumb so um, the next process in your bread making is building some of that gluten strength up and you do that through stretch and folds or coil folds or slap and fold there's all different types of terms to basically describe how you're manipulating this dough but you're just um it's it's not a kneading process right you're not like turning the dough out onto a floured surface and kneading it for 20 minutes Mm. like maybe other bread recipes but instead you're you're very gently sort of folding the dough onto itself so that it can create like this web-like structure and you do that four times Mm. you can do it more time you can do it six times you can do it eight times but this basic recipe says you do it four times and in between those four times you give your dough 30 minutes to rest so every time your dough is resting more of that gluten is is bonding. More of that, um, more of those proteins are are strengthening and creating that structure. And then after that, you cover your dough and you let it bulk ferment, and you let it you let those yeast and bacteria just eat through, right? So you're done, kind of building up any sort of gluten. You're You've done the stretch and folds, or yeah, and that's what I feel like you use most often, right? Is a stretch and fold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and all this is is because you know we we we. we um, it feels like another term. And I just feel like my heart says, let's just define this really quick. Stretch and fold as someone that's watching you do it is literally you will pull a part of the dough up into the air, not ripping it from the like original batch of dough. Yeah. And you stretch it over the length of the dough, put it down, and then you're stretching it out and then you're folding it over. Mm-hmm. And then you're just stretching and folding it over and stretching and folding it over. And it's it's a method of um, stretching out that gluten and folding it in to build up the strength and to activate that gluten. Yeah, it's almost like layering the dough. Like, you know, when you make biscuits and you have to fold the biscuit dough onto itself yeah. to create those specific layers. Now, that's different because biscuit making, you actually don't want to encourage gluten. Um, you're actually just layering fat and flour. But for this, you're layering the the dough onto itself so that it creates that web-like structure. And YouTube is your number one resource. Stretch and fold, YouTube. I, yeah. Boom. Look up stretch and fold, coil folds, that's C-O-I-L. Um, you can look up slap and folds. Um, there's just all kinds of different methods, different names to show like, Hey, this is physically what I'm doing to this dough. Um, but you'll hear people say the no need method. That's kind of, that was kind of coined by, um, Chad Robertson who wrote Tartine and has a really successful sourdough business, but, um, that doesn't mean that you're not manipulating the dough. That just means we're not kneading it on a floured surface like you would, you know, I don't know. I always thought like all bread need, 
all Brad needed needed. (laughs) (laughs) But um, these these other ways of dough manipulation count as a no need process, which is confusing. Sometimes people think, oh, I just mix up my ingredients. Hey, there's no kneading. Why are you stretching full? And I let it go. Yeah, it's it's, it's not that. You have to do something. So once you build up your gluten, you're going to do the bulk ferment. This is the time where that yeast and bacteria are consuming the sugars. And all you want to see at the end of your bulk ferment is a 30 to 50% rise. It doesn't have to be doubled, but you want to at least see a 30% increase. And if if you're bulking, in a wide bowl, it might be hard for you to see any rise at all. So what you can look for instead are little tiny bubbles on the surface. If you start, if you have a wet with a wet hand, if you pull some of your dough away from the bowl, if there are little legs, like little bits of the dough still sticking, mm. um, that indicate like, hey, there were bubbles underneath here. Mm. Those are all good signs of fermentation. Um, don't count unless you're using a straight-edged container, which is what a lot of people suggest on YouTube or Instagram. Don't stress over like, oh, my dough doesn't look like it rose at all. It, it probably did rise, but you're using a super wide bowl, and so it's expanding at all angles. Mm. So you can't see it heighten, but it is increasing. So the bulk ferment is just meant to... Um, give those yeast and bacteria time to eat through those starches and those sugars in the flour itself. And then uh, you shape your dough, which is exactly what it sounds like. You're giving your dough structure to be able to withstand its bake because you bake sourdough in sort of a free form, meaning it's not in a bread loaf pan or some sort of container where it's going to take the shape of the container. It has to stand on its own. So you need to sort of tighten it up into this little ball or boule or batard. There's different terms that um, indicate this shape of your bread. Um but that also is a process where YouTube is your number one mm-hmm. resource there. I, I highly recommend looking up, and I, I give specific um, videos to look in the guide, but high hydration shaping is, is probably the hardest part, honestly. And it's the thing that takes the longest to um, master. I, I don't even think I've mastered that. So, um, And then after that, you move into what's called the cold proof, which is continued fermentation, But this is happening at a much slower rate. And actually what's happening is your dough is going into the the fridge. So it's going to be, what, around 40 degrees, 37, 40 degrees. Um, At this point, the yeast activity is really, really slowing down, almost to like a bare minimum. But the bacterial activity relatively stays the same under cold temps. So this is where if you like that tangy flavor of bread and you like a really sour sourdough, if you extend this process and let that bacteria continue working in overtime while the yeast kind of goes to sleep, that's when you're going to get a sour loaf. So that's what I mean when you can manipulate these things because there's so many different ways to Mm. achieve that. You could achieve that by adding in more starter to your bread. You could achieve it by using um, a more acidic starter to begin with. There's there's several. A ton of variables that can so add to variables. that flavor. Right yeah. So the cold proof, the, the pur- purpose of this is to, again, continue that fermentation process. Um, some people say that this is where a lot of that gluten pre-digestion is happening during the cold proof. So people that are really sensitive to gluten like to do like a 24-hour cold proof. And then honestly, it really helps because when you go to score your loaf, you want to score a cold piece of dough. Otherwise, that warm dough is just kind of spread all over the parchment paper. So it gives it structure, continues the fermentation, um, and it gives you this really beautiful sort of solidified dough to then score and pop right into the oven 
So after you do that, you usually preheat your oven with your Dutch oven inside and then um, score your loaf, which means cut it. You have to you have to give the loaf natural places to expand. Otherwise, it will just crack open anywhere Mm -hmm. it wants to, which people can do and it can be fine. But um, scoring is kind of the fun artistic part of the sourdough. And, And you can have two different kinds. You can have a functional score, which is just like a really big you know, one score down or an X maybe in the center of a round bowl. But, um, and then you can have decorative scoring, which is like the little leaf pattern or the wheat pattern mm. or the um, sunrise. Yeah, it's just like Christmas some, tree. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. The, yeah. All, all the different types of scoring. And again, YouTube is a fantastic resource for seeing what this looks like. So, but scoring essentially is just a pressure release. Yep. It's like the same reason why when you do baked potatoes, you you poke it with a fork. Yeah, perforate before, before, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you bake your bread, which is pretty straightforward. You usually bake the first por- portion of your loaf covered in a Dutch oven pan because you're not a professional baker that has access to steam injectors in your oven. So if you ever see people in a bakery just throwing the loaves in the oven and shutting the door... They have really specific settings on their ovens that are injecting steam for the first 20 minutes and then um, opening the vents so that the steam releases and um, then you can sort of caramelize the crust on your bread, mm. but we don't have that. So we like to bake into in containers because that steam gets trapped into the Dutch oven. Um, and this is the part where <laughs> I recently spent like an entire afternoon filming a reel because I had learned um, of this really interesting tactic to preheat your oven and your Dutch oven. And then when you load your bread, turn the oven off, which sounds so counterintuitive. And um, this is supposed to create a really nice spring in your bread, an oven spring, a really good rise. And I tried this whole method. I filmed the whole reel and then my bread like turned out horrible. And I was like, well, shoot, I guess I'll just post this reel anyways. Then I found out that the pan I was using was not a Dutch oven. It was instead a stock pot, which sounds ridiculous, but it's it was a ceramic stock pot that was just sent to me. And so I didn't know that this company's stock pot and their Dutch oven were so different. And the seal on the stock pot was nowhere near my traditional Le Creuset Dutch oven. And so the reason why that whole reel flopped is be is not because the turn off the oven didn't work it's because I didn't create a tight enough seal and that steam just escaped so that's mm. why I had terrible oven spring so the steam is so important and a lot of times people will ask me like can I still bake if I don't have a Dutch oven or a combo cooker which is another type of um, sort of sealed container and I say not really like you really need that um, people can mimic the steam with like lava rocks and hot towels in their oven but at that rate I'm like it's worth the 30 bucks to get a combo cooker at least because it's really hard to bake sourdough bread in a home oven without a way to trap that steam. And then you obviously remove the lid um, once your bread has risen for that initial 20 minutes and you you then continue to bake it, but you also get that beautiful, nice, crusty, mm. um, caramelized surface. The lid's removed. Mm-hmm. It's drying up. And okay. Yeah. And then after you take it out, you let it sit for an hour because it's still continuing to bake during that hour. And then after that, you're good to go. Simple process. <laughs> Takes yeah, about I, uh, 24 hours. It's um, 
I think that's the reason why we're doing this. Yeah. And I think we're going to be con- continuing to, to talk through these, these concepts and this process because um, while that was really lengthy and there's a lot to be said about how to, you know, create and, and bake sourdough, the, the learnings kind of never stop. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the reasons we love it, but also one of the reasons why it's, there's such a, um, a barrier to enter that kind yeah. of realm mm-hmm. for a lot of people. So so in, in the guide, again, I'm not going to go over it, but I do have sample timelines. So if people are like, okay, that's a really long period of time. How do I figure out exactly when to do each thing? I have a sample timeline for, hey, if you want to bake your bread in the morning, this is what you have to do the day before. If you want to bake your bread in the evening, this is what you have to do the night before. Um, and that includes when to feed your starter, when to mix your dough, when to ferment, um, and all of those things. So definitely utilize that resource because um, that will help you get sort of a framework for that. Right on. Let's, um, I know we mentioned a number of different tools of the trade, right? Things that you'll need. Um, Let's talk about some of the materials that folks will need to to create their own sourdough loaf Mm -hmm. or, um, and even beyond that, not, not only just physical items, but, but also ingredients mm-hmm. that, that we would recommend. Yeah, so you're going to want to start, because your sourdough is only three ingredients, water, flour, salt, you want to start with high-quality high ingredients. So I always recommend bread flour. The reason why it's called bread flour is because the percentage of protein in that flour is usually around 14% versus an AP flour, which is usually like... I don't know, 10 to 12%. So it's a lower, a all-purpose flour is a lower weak, is a lower gluten flour, a weaker gluten flour, I should say, whereas bread flour um, has that stronger gluten, which we shouldn't fear because actually the gluten then is pre-digested and broken down in the mm. process, but you need something to have good structure. So bread flour is just made out of a hard wheat, whereas all-purpose flour is made out of a soft wheat. It's it's pretty similar. Or it's pretty basic, I mean. Um, and, and you can find a variety of different wheats. You can find ancient grains. You can find heritage grains, which are sort of pre, you know, modernization of wheat, but not quite as old enough to say ancient grain. Um, and then you can obviously use any sort of bread flour you find at the grocery store. That's awesome. So flour. Um, now, you mentioned to me last night that there's there's some flowers that people get really hyped about that maybe we, we would recommend don't start with. Yeah, a lot of people want to dive right into the einkorn sourdough. And I would say einkorn is the hardest wheat to make. It can be done. It can be done. You will never get a super wide, beautiful, open crumb with a whole wheat einkorn. Why you is just that? won't. Einkorn has a really weak gluten structure. Um, it, especially if you're using whole wheat, some of that bran um, that's in there, it kind of slices and dices up that gluten. So it's, it makes it harder to have a really nice elastic dough and um, it's, it, it absorbs water way differently. So it tends to absorb less water. So it's really hard to push the hydration level on einkorn wheat um, sourdough than it is uh, something that absorbs water a little bit more efficiently. If you really want to go the ancient grain route, I prefer Kamut. Kamut, um, K-A-M-U-T flour, is uh, a beautiful sort of like silky, almost like fine cake flour, the kinds that I've used before, and um, creates a lighter loaf. It's a little bit spongier. Um, 
it's still a nice, beautiful, soft loaf, but it's not quite as webby. Mm. Um, it, it's more of cake. I, w- I don't want to say cakey, but I want to say spongier kind of texture. But that creates a beautiful um, sourdough loaf with, with an ancient grain. Right on. So we've got we got ingredients. We're using uh, filtered water. We're using unrefined salt. Unrefined salt. We're using awesome, awesome wheat, awesome flour. Yeah. Um, what about what about like actual tools? I know we talked about scoring. We talked about combo cookers. You know, what 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 are the, what are the tools of the trade there? So all of the materials again are linked in the guide, so they're actually clickable. I made this guide clickable, so you can just click right in. Um, but I'll, I'll, t- I'll sort of give you the context as to why you need those things, and then you can go look at the guide to make sure you have everything you need. Um, the kitchen scale isn't the number one thing, really, because again, because sourdough has so many variables, we like to keep some things really consistent and measuring by volume or sorry, measuring by weight is incredibly important because if you think about your sourdough starter, this big bubbly, frothy, marshmallowy thing would be really hard to measure accurately by volume because it's it's got air in it. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to like stir it down mm-hmm. and then and then measure volume mm-hmm. and then you'd have to clarify it and be confusing. So that's why we typically measure by weight in grams. Um, the kitchen scale that we have, I have the same one linked in the guide. We got it like secondhand and we've had it for like eight years. So I'm, it's got it just it. needs to weigh grams, right? Just needs to weigh in grams. Uh, you don't have to spend big bucks here. Um, I think it uh, sells for like $12. I don't know. Anyways, you'll you'll have it for years. Um, you can also get a manual, uh, what is it called? Analog scale. Doesn't require batteries, mm. but whatever. Mm-hmm. Kitchen scale is key, right? Um, you're also going to want some big, nice, large mixing bowls. Um, I have the ceramic ones that we have listed on here. We got them for our wedding. Um, I like them. They chip on the side sometimes. You have to be okay with imperfect... Uh, mixing bowls are a little bit heavy, but mixing bowls, they've, they've done us well. Um, you, I highly, highly recommend investing in a banneton, which is going to be the basket that bread is going to do its cold proof in. And the reason why I think if you're just going to even bake bread once a week, why you should get a banneton is because it really does make a difference. So the reason why the banneton is the banneton is it's this, this basket woven with rattan wood material and what that rattan does is it sort of like wicks away the moisture from the loaf so especially when we're talking about high hydration loaves which are really wet and can be sticky um, you want something that's that the the dough is not just going to sit and puddle and pool in right which it would with a traditional um, say you're using a small mixing bowl or a, another type of basket the the um, banneton is going to do a really good job of keeping good airflow mm-hmm. into that loaf um, keeping the outside relatively dry without letting it dry out completely and then it also just gives you your like really beautiful ridges that um, people have known to come to love with the sourdough um, especially if you're using it without the liner and you can actually use the banditons with the liner or without the liner I prefer without the liner um, and then speaking of that you'll want some good rice flour 
So you usually flour your loaves before you put them in the banneton so that it prevents sticking. And then you can also flour your loaves again right before you score because the rice flour um, creates this really beautiful contrast because it stays pretty white even when you bake it at high temps. Mm. Um, and then that's where you see like the gorgeous designs really elevated because mm. you have this like white surface. The contrast. Yeah. yeah. And and the other, other reason for using rice flour is because it doesn't contain gluten. So you don't have to worry about fermenting it at all. You're not adding unfermented flour to this beautiful loaf you just worked so hard for. And it's also not going to absorb into the crust and make it gummy. It, pr- it brushes off. It stays pretty um separate from the from the loaf so those are some really key materials you're going to want to bake on parchment paper um, preferably unbleached which again i have a good one linked and then the the other most important thing is that cooker um, you can either either use a combo cooker, which basically looks like two um, cast iron pans sort of like resting on each other, which they can absolutely be used um, on their own as a separate cast iron pan. Or you can use like an enameled cast iron um, Dutch oven. So we have a Dutch oven. The combo cooker is actually better to use because it has lower sides for loading your loaf in and it's actually much cheaper. So we're mm. talking like 35 to $50 nice. instead of like, you know, $300. So those are some of the things um, that I recommend purchasing. And uh, I also like to get like a 60 pack of razor blades to score my bread. You can get a really fancy bread lom if you want. Um, the things with the handles that people can score their bread. I prefer to just hold the blade in my hands and, and score that way. I feel like I have more control. And I think a 60 pack of razor blades, which I probably switch my blades out every five loaves or so, um, was like $9. So mm. really economical stuff. And and all this stuff you're you're buying and investing in for long-term use. I mean, your banneton should last you years. Your scale should last you years. Your mixing bowls should last you years. None of this is like highly consumable product, mm-hmm. except for the parchment paper. Um, but even that, you can reuse sheets of parchment paper. So, right on. And then, and then uh, we talked about the scoring. We talked about the cooking. We talked about the mixing bowls, scale, um, nothing else. And, and now, I'm only bringing this up because rice flour is it the same? What is semolina flour? So semolina flour is a weeded flour. Okay, it's usually what pasta is made out of. Um, I think it's ground to a coarser consistency, so that's why why we use it under our pizzas because mm. it has kind of the same consistency as a cornmeal. Um, you could t- hypothetically use semolina flour um, it, to keep it from sticking. I wouldn't recommend like using that. I've used it when I've run out of rice flour, but um, every bakery is probably using rice flour Got it. and uh but we have semolina for the pizzas for specifically pizzas. Mm-hmm. yeah because i like the texture i like that bottom um like sort of rigid it's a little more coarse yeah i, yep. I like that turn up so um let's let's jump into some recipes let's let's just uh as we're winding down here some of our favorite things to to cook, some of our favorite sourdough baked goods. Yeah, how we utilize it. Um, so I like to keep a rhythm in our home of making something sourdough like two to three times a week. So whether that's two loaves of bread a week or one loaf of bread and a batch of pancakes or one loaf of bread and a batch of pizza dough. Um, because that what that does is it allows me to regularly feed my starter. Um, I can then pop my starter in the fridge and I don't have to like 
get confused about when I'm going to use it next. I have a basic rhythm going and um, and then it allows me to replace some baked goods that I would be buying at the store with at home, properly fermented um, grain baked goods that we enjoy on a regular basis. So I, I, you know, we eat pizza, we eat bread, we eat pancakes. All of those things are very normal. Um, you can elevate the nutritional profile and digestibility just by converting it to sourdough. So um, I have recipes actually in the guide. I have a sourdough um, discard pancake, which is what you're going to be using with your discard. You can also use active starter. I think my most famous recipe is the active starter um, chocolate chip cookies, which create sort of like this cake-like scone. Mm -hmm. It's so good. It's like becoming one of my favorite types of cookie. And you can sub out the chocolate chips for like, you can make a snickerdoodle version. You could make... um, It's just a cookie. It's just a, it's just a basic cookie principle. It's like a cakey cookie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's delicious. So, um, and that's what I would encourage people to do. I, I think the best advice I ever took from um, some of the people online that I followed for a long time was like, hey, if you're going to be going through the effort to make one loaf of bread, mix two loaves at a time because that way you're getting twice the practice. And a lot of people ask me like, well, why wouldn't you just mix the loaves all in one bowl and then cut them in half? You can do that, but you can also practice every step of the way and get double the experience, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So in the beginning, I was always making two loaves of bread and that way you practice shaping two loaves of bread and you practice baking two loaves of bread because yeah, if you're already going through the process, of making a loaf, you might as well double it and give one away, especially when you're learning. Um, I, I think people are really quick to DM me the second their first loaf is a flop. And I just want to encourage them and say, hey, it took me like eight months. You know, I wasn't working off the same knowledge that I'm handing people now. I think if I was given this guide now, I, I could be able to get it within the first five loaves. But it's okay to have your first couple loaves not turn out well. Mm. And all you need to do when that happens is take a mental note of what is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would like to wrap this up, this episode up with answering the two most commonly asked questions that I have. But um, I, I think for people getting into it, get yourself in a regular rhythm of baking sourdough, whatever type of sourdough that is. If it's less intimidating to make some pizza, start with pizza. If you just want to learn how your sourdough starter functions and you want to start with the chocolate chip cookie recipe, like, my goodness, do that. Mm. <laughs> like, you don't have to go right into a beautiful artisan loaf of bread. Um, yeah. I definitely want to touch on those those commonly asked questions as well. But, but right before we do that, I guess I'll just touch on my favorite recipes with sourdough. It, it's, um, I for sure am probably... The sourdough pizza is is definitely my top two, three. Um, I love making them. I love that we have identified a crust that we can. It's almost like it took a while to get it, to get the sourdough crust to be the way that we wanted it mm-hmm. to be. And it kind of once you get the crust down, and then it, now there's the part that I enjoy, which is um, being the flavor right and getting the the caramelization on the cheese and and finding the sauce that that I that I enjoy the most, the tomatoes that I want to use, and which herbs and and um, different different cheese varieties that that cook better. Um, that for me is is really really um, awesome. And so, love the pizza. I do love the cookies. Um, I'm not a huge cookie person, so I don't eat a ton of sweets. But these ones are good. The um, the baguette. I feel like we don't make enough baguettes. I know it's because I haven't really identified the best 
way to cook it because it mm. doesn't fit into a Dutch oven. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't even fit on the cookie sheet. So that's something I'm still working on. And uh, I have the Banneton, a baguette. It's exactly what you think. It's just a really long, yep. skinny Banneton. Um, but You've I, made a good one before, though. Uh, yeah. And I'm just, I'm still working on that. Yep. And I, 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 the beauty of this, too, is like you're not in a rush to perfect anything. No. Like I'll be making, I've never even um, dabbled in the English muffin yet. Like that's the next thing I think I want to make. Maybe like a cast iron roasting pan. Oh, for the Dutch oven or for the baguette. Yeah, because mm-hmm. it'd be longer. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good Because it just needs a lid, right? It just needs to seal good. It just needs a good lid. Yeah. All right. Let's get on that because I'm interested <laughs> in the baguettes. Um, and then let's see if there's any other recipe. I love the bread. It's become such a staple in our house, though. And, and I like that. I like having, hey, it's dinner time and dinner becomes a little bit easier because uh, I cook up a meat and a veggie and then... We'll have some bread mm-hmm. and um that really simple exactly that staple having it in the house all the time yeah the rhythm of cooking the bread can become annoying but it actually then supports family kind of rhythms that will need to be implemented anyway like right. hey you're, if you're cooking dinner or you're cooking lunch you're making breakfast you have bread in the house and you wake up in the morning and you want to have breakfast and boom you got toast mm-hmm. or boom you've, you've got a little bit of older loaf you make some you make some um, french toast with with that loaf or you're making a salad for for lunch. And you can do some croutons, mm-hmm. or uh, you can make a sandwich. Or um, and then at dinner time, it could be it could just be bread and butter that you're you know dipping into your stew. Or um, I just I like that. So I like having that staple there. I enjoy having it around the house. It's it, it truly having that practice continuing to kind of go on makes our lives just a little bit easier. So yeah. Um, Let's jump into these commonly asked questions. Let's let's uh, let's uh, let's answer those once and for all. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna answer two of the most common commonly asked questions, and then the rest of it. Um, again, I'm gonna point people to this resource because I have a whole page on reading your starter. I have a whole page on sort of like troubleshooting. So, um, one people say my starter won't rise or it won't double it's been five days what's going on it did really well on day three and now it just seems like it's dying first of all you cannot kill your starter these things are so prolific like they want to survive the yeast and bacteria want to survive they're opportunists Um, they're going to either thrive or go dormant the only way you can really destroy them is by heating them um, or like not feeding them for weeks. Like really, it's that basic. So um, what I'll tell you, I'll give you a little inside tip and say that in the process of cultivating your sourdough starter from the very beginning, meaning you didn't go buy one off of Etsy or whatever, you mixed water and flour together on day one. Day three, your sourdough starter might double in size. It might be super frothy and beautiful and marshmallowy, and you're like, wow, can I bake with this already? The answer is no. But you're going to get confused because day four through seven, it might seem to go flat. And you're just like, what is happening? Mm. Uh, Something really interesting there is that the initial um, cultivation of bacteria that's happening right there is actually dying off. And you're transitioning from some of that acidic bacteria to the lactic acid bacteria. So you have to give yourself a window of time where that bacterial population, they're fighting each other, right? It's like survival of the fittest in there. And um, all you have to do is keep feeding just keep feeding and give that thing time and so if you're on day seven or nine or even ten and you're like my sourdough starter will not rise it won't double um don't stress 
give it more time, continue feeding. And then if you need to, if you need encouragement, um, adjust your feeding ratios. Mm. And I go into great depth on feeding ratios in the guide. Again, high proportion feeding is always going to be my number one. Um, if we're, if you're only feeding the bare minimum over and over and over again, there's a chance you're going to smother out that Mm. population. So that is my like question number one. Yeah. Breathe a deep breath and say, keep feeding Let it go, yeah. and, and do high, the, do those high ratio. Feeds. Trust the process. Trust the process. And then the second one, the, the one I'm getting a lot, especially now as temperatures are shifting, right? We're getting out of winter into spring, warmer weathers, warmer houses. People say my dough is so sticky. Okay. I have a cultivated starter. I mixed my dough. I go to shape it and it's floppy. It's sticky. I can't shape it. So here's what I say. Number one, high hydration dough is always sticky. Always. It will always be some. Um, it looks wrong. It, I mean, I know that when I've watched the first time around, I was like, how is that bread? That can't be right. Exactly. It's not a batter. So it looks it's not nothing su- like bread looks like on TV. Exactly. It looks nothing like it. It's not soupy. It's not. I mean, it looks like putty almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a point where your sourdough bread has become too sticky and wet and and you can sort of even see some of the water like on the surface Mm. and that is the point where your dough has overproofed so here's the trick too is that all this conversation is about high hydration dough it's also about long fermentation because you can ferment your dough in four hours that's not the method i use Um, i prefer a longer fermentation to benefit from the uh, effects of fermentation right so it's going to totally depend on your house temps. If your house is like 75 degrees right now because it's springtime and you have a wood stove burning and you're letting that puppy sit for 12 hours, it's going to overproof. If you're going to your bowl in the morning and it's so sticky, you, even with a wet hand, you can't manipulate it or it doesn't hold its structure. It has just simply overfermented. So if that's happening to you, you can one, decrease your amount of starter that you're using in your overall loaf. But most importantly, the easiest fix is to shorten your fermentation time. Cut it back to six hours. See what happens. Um, If your house is really hot, like 80 degrees, cut it down to four hours. Um, Something we didn't even talk about, but a lot of the, quote, sourdough influencers on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube, they're using really controlled environments because they've invested in a proofing drawer and or a proofing box. And so... um, we don't use that in our house. So we're just living with our basic yeah. oven and our countertop temps, the ambient temperature in our house. So if you want to um, get to that level, yeah, sure, invest in a proofing drawer and then you you can have the same consistent yeah. fermentation time. But if you're not like that and you're trying to, to flex with the different temps, um, don't over-ferment your dough. And then the second thing is, if it is sticky, which I always recommend using a wet hand, um, you got to have that bench scraper. I have several highlights on my Instagram. And oh, that's a tool we should have added. Yeah. The bench scraper, uh, there's two different types. There's a dough scraper and a bench scraper. The dough scraper has a round edge. The bench scraper has a flat edge and is usually metal. Um, but that bench scraper is going to really help you sort of scoop that dough with one hand and then use your wet hand to shape it um, in the other. And again, my Instagram is a free resource with tons of sourdough info. The guide is obviously your number one. But the purpose of this podcast is sort of to talk through those things to give extra context. So um, those are the two most commonly asked questions. My sourdough starter won't rise or my dough is too sticky. Those are my basic answers. And uh, hopefully that gives some clarification. And yeah, just to, just to reiterate, when we were talking through some of the tools of the trade, uh, a bench scraper, 
you know, um, a, it's like, it looks like a plastic, you know, bread knife, right? Yeah. Well, the dough scraper is usually plastic and the bench scraper is usually metal. Or dough knife. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Dough knife. Yeah. But there's, so there's two kinds. And the, the kit I have linked in the guide comes with one of those. Got it. Okay. Just wanted to make sure you mentioned that because, um, I think, I think that it, people would, would find themselves wanting one of those if they didn't have it. Um, right on. So as people are kind of getting into this, you know, obviously we recommend, Hey, you want to make some sourdough, go on to homegrowneducation.org, get the, get the sourdough guide. It's free. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's free. So you do have to put in your email and I think your mailing address for some reason, but no credit card info. Sometimes people get freaked out about that. That's fair. Um, it's free. Um, are there, are there other folks or people that you would recommend uh, they, they um, look into to kind of continue learning and understanding more about sourdough? Absolutely. Um, Food Geek, number one. He's my number one guy. His name's Soon. Um, he's on YouTube. He's got an Instagram account as well, um, but I, I follow his YouTube channel. Fantastic. He, he does a lot of experiments side by side. He tests a lot of people's recipes. Um, he's the one that taught me the trick to turn your oven off when you load your bread. Um, also, Proof Bakery, I believe they're in Arizona. Um, they have a fantastic YouTube channel. So soon is a home baker. Proof baker, proof bread is going to be professional bakers um, and learning from them. I love their YouTube channel. I love their philosophy. I love hearing um, them talk. It, they're awesome. And then Joshua Weissman, he's he's a really famous uh, Instagram food um, profile, but he does a lot of sourdough. And so his YouTube channel is also really good. Um, there is a sourdough podcast. It's literally called the sourdough podcast. That's great. Um, the perfect loaf is a really good blog that you can go on. And then of course there's books, right? There's the art of fermentation by Sandor Katz. There's tartine bread by Chad Robertson. Um, and then, uh, the perfect loafs, um, the creator, his name's Maurizio. He, he's got a great Instagram account as well. So all of those are listed again in the guide, but, uh, if you don't have that in front of you, check those people out. Right on. So on this, on this, uh, journey towards great sourdough, um, keep listening to this podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be talking about this more. I mean, I feel like we've mentioned sourdough in some capacity in every single episode. In every episode, in every it's because episode. it's my favorite topic. And it's just you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there, and it, and it, and it um, um, there's more to it than just you know making good bread. There's there's a lot of a lot of awesome rhythms that kind of come out of um, getting into a consistent sourdough baking rhythm. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. Uh, follow those folks, and uh, they can they can help you also on your way. Um, we also have some other resources. The journey of of good nutrition is um, definitely a factor with with sourdough. It's it, sourdough supports that journey, uh, but there's so much more. Mm-hmm. There's so much more, and um, and uh, we talk about all those things on this podcast. So tune in once a week. We release these on Wednesdays. Uh, check them out. They're awesome. We did one recently about coffee. Uh, we love coffee. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. It was so fun. We brought a guest on. His name was Derek. He's the bomb. Uh, so listen to our podcast. Uh, we also have some other resources that we've created for um, for continuing this journey towards real nutrition. Uh, these resources are the Real Food Guide. This goes way beyond just sourdough. Talking about, um, well, tell me about the the 
real food guide let's, let's hear from the source yeah so the real food guide was really created it's a pdf download and i had so many adults messaging me saying i don't even have kids yet or my kids aren't even old enough for your nutrition curriculum but i bought it because i want to learn these things i i don't know where my food comes from i don't know the basic function of each vitamin and mineral i don't know the source of you know what how to get those foods in um and I was like, well, shoot, uh, let me take some of that information in the in the children's curriculum and um, put it in a um, format that is beneficial for adults. And so I added some sourcing stuff because obviously we have the buying power as adults. Um, I give you simple swaps. I tell you good, better, best options. So like that's really really important for things like dairy where some people don't have the same access um and so all that information's in there and it, it really starts in the same way that the children's nutrition curriculum starts which is saying okay what does the usda say about food what does traditional um, dietary wisdom say about food and how do we make sense of those two opposing viewpoints that's how all my resources start and um the real food guide is a pdf download for adults so get that pdf download um Buy it on homegrowneducation.org and um, get on this path towards real food. We've also got, uh, as, as uh, Elizabeth mentioned, we've got children curriculum. We think that not only um, are we wanting to change the narrative for adults, and that's, you know, that's a huge impactful way of doing it for sure. Uh, get on, get on the, the sourdough train, uh, get the real food guide, but uh, we want to shape the next generation. Mm-hmm. We want to change the way... Um, food is viewed because ultimately we're in a supply and demand kind of culture. And as people grow up and they, they recognize where food come, comes from and what they should be eating. And um, it's, it's, it's uh, very impactful. We've got a elementary age version. This mm-hmm. is an activity workbook. Uh, we have a five-year-old that lives in this house. Um, this is one of the reasons we created this workbook. Mm-hmm. We actually created all of these resources for ourselves the reason we created them for ourselves is because there wasn't something and we said, hey, we need to be teaching our kids about real food. Mm-hmm. And this activity workbook helps familiarize um, our middle child, Ruth, with what real food is, where it comes from. Um, you know, the difference between going to the Kroger and buying steak to, hey, um, cows raised on a farm and, and grazing on pastures and treated you know, properly and that's where beef comes from. Mm-hmm. But, you know, quite frankly, in this home, steak is most commonly associated with deer or venison because that's kind of what we eat most of. Um, additionally, we have a resource. So, so get, that for your, get that for your elementary kids. Uh, there's handwriting in there. There's, there's um, coloring pages. There's uh, matching sheets that kind of help kids know, you know, uh, this is what we should be eating. This is real food. Um, it's awesome. There's a version for older kids, fourth through sixth grade. We also have an 11-year-old. I know this is like groundbreaking, earth-shattering information, but you know we, we created guides for, for our children, and we're going to continue creating stuff that, that can help them, and, and we'll definitely, whenever we do that, bring it to you guys. But this is more of an in-depth. Why don't you, why don't you tell a little about this curriculum? Because this is one where um, I'm definitely not an expert. I understand you know, what Ruthie's doing, but what's, the, the curriculum that Sophie's doing is definitely a little bit more uh, in-depth. Yeah, it's really rich. So... Um, that's actually the first thing I, I wrote and it was because, yeah, I needed something for Sophie to teach her about real food and, um, everything from, like I said earlier, basic 
breakdown of nutrition, right? Macronutrients, vitamins, minerals, things like that. Two, farming practices. Let's talk about organic versus conventional. Let's ask the questions as to why organic produce is sometimes more expensive at the store. Um, What does it look like to shop at a farmer's market where they're not certified organic? And why might that be um, something that you can still trust and source accurately? Um, Like I said, it goes into so much of the nuance of food and nutrition, basically what food is and where it comes from, all through the lens of real food. So for us, that means that it's naturally occurring, nutrient-dense, not refined, and not denatured. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we talk about you know animal-based eating and utilizing the whole animal and um, you know seasonal produce and properly fermented grains, all of those things that people are sort of waking up to um, or, you know, they've been on this journey for 20 years, but maybe the resources haven't caught up yet. So that's really where we like to step in and say, hey, there's here, here's something that we can create for those folks. So and finally, with all that, we've got, hey, you know, the journey's tough and and um, making dinners from scratch can be challenging. We, we created a, a meal plan food guide called What's for Dinner. It, it it's trying to alleviate the tension of a spouse or a parent coming home and asking the question, what's for dinner? Or even asking yourself. Or even asking yourself, <laughs> what's for dinner tonight? And, um, you know, get on homegrowneducation.org, get that book. It's, it's awesome. It, it, it plans out the recipes. Uh, the recipes are awesome. It also gives you the shopping lists. Don't, don't stress, right? And it's, it's going to help you plan out week to week what dinners look like. Um, it'll give you some leftovers there as well, and um, it, it's just another way to kind of further uh, get yourself on the path towards uh, real nutrition. And finally, if you're wanting to, to to just hear more, I mean, if you haven't heard enough <laughs> of my ramblings, or you haven't heard enough of uh, Elizabeth's wise. I was gonna say, are you gonna call my my conversation <laughs> rambling? Wise. Um, fi- find us on Instagram. You can find Elizabeth <laughs> at homegrown underscore education, and you can find me at Joey Hazelmeyer. Um, we'd love to chat. Yeah. Someone actually asked me, what is with the name battle every at the end of every episode? Why do you call me Elizabeth, but I go by Liz for everywhere else? And then someone tagged me and said, Elizabeth shared this on her podcast. And I said, I feel so close to you. That's what Joey calls me. Uh, My full name is Elizabeth. I have not gone by that since I was like eight. I used to go by Lizzie. Um, And then I'm somewhere in high school or college. I was like, Liz sounds more professional. I don't know. But feel free to call me whatever you want. (laughs) right on you can call me joey if you like yeah i don't have many nicknames but uh until next time until next time